This is what Malachi 3.13 says right here. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord, yet you ask, what have we said against you? Now, if you've been around and you've been kind of following through the sermons on the book of Malachi, then this is pretty familiar, right? I mean, God makes a claim about the people and then they disagree with it. And so here God says, you've spoken arrogantly against me. And they say, well, I don't think so. How have we done that? I'm pretty sure we haven't said anything that's evil or wicked or bad about you. Uh, I can't remember saying anything like that. And so uh, so God's going to answer their question and uh, and what he's going to say is something that, even if we don't care to admit it, probably deep inside of us, we have thought many times. At least we have felt it many times. Here's what he says. You have said, it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out His requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed, certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. The Hebrew word for blessed is a word that means to be built up. And so the idea here is that the evil are being built up, that their lives are better, that good things are happening for them, that it seems like the evil they're doing is actually correlating with, with their blessing, with their goodness, with their good fortune. And it says there at the end, just one more thing to point out, that, that they are getting away with it. And so what, what these people are saying to God is, look, people can do whatever they want against you, and, and it's like you don't notice. It's like you're not paying attention. They get away with it. Your punishment is not there, even though you said about the Israelites, the people you're writing to, that we will be punished if we do certain things. And, and here, they're saying, hey, no matter how bad people are, no matter how many wicked things they do, they prosper and we don't. Now, for the people that... The book of Malachi is specifically written to. This is like right in their faces. Now remember, Persia, a different empire, is over the Jewish people at this time. The Israelites are not free to do their own stuff. They, they are under oppression of the Persians. They pay taxes to them. And these Jewish people are looking at the Persians and they're saying, those guys worship idols. I mean, literally, not like, you know, we talk about like kind of we worship idols if we want something more than God. If you've been around church, you've heard things like that. These people like have stone images that they worship. I mean, they bring offerings to these pieces of stone and wood and metal. And the Jewish people are like got to be thinking, okay, they're ruling over us. I mean, and we're kind of maybe not offering the way that you've asked us to, but we're doing a lot better than those people because we're bringing the animals that you've told us to. They're not perfect, but we're bringing them. And we're bringing some of the money that you've asked us to collect for offerings. And, and so, God, why is it that those people who blatantly disregard you are ruling over us? Some of our money's going to them. They seem to be rich and prosperous. They're not worried about the crops that aren't growing like us. And their people don't seem to be sick and dying. It's right in their faces. And, and if we're honest, it's right in our faces, too. Several examples come to mind. First of all, just uh, I, I like sports and I have a baseball background. And, and I think about the biggest cheaters that we know in baseball. And, and you look at them and they blatantly took steroids. And, and, I mean, their necks got like this big, right? And we all liked the home runs. And then they looked in the cameras or they looked at Congress and, and they're like, I never took steroids. And then, and then tests start showing up and it's like, yes, you did take steroids. And then sometimes they don't make it into the Hall of Fame and, and they get suspended and things like that. But here's my thought, like, hmm, 
they still made like a hundred bajillion dollars because they decided to cheat, right? And they're probably sitting at home in their super nice mansions going, I guess I get half the season off. This is cool. They're still paying me to sit around now. And I just think, you blatantly are lying, cheating suckers. And look how much money you got because of it. There's more. I look at the politicians in our country, right? And you look at them, and, and I'm not talking about anybody in specific or one political party, please know that. But all of them will just say, minus a couple guys, they seem, the higher up they get, to be more and more corrupt. And you can read articles that show, like, where politicians, both sides, both parties, where they say one thing, and then like a week later in a, in a different interview, they say the exact opposite thing. And there's corruption everywhere. And we can see it, right? We're not blind to it. There's some nice guys in politics. But but it's pretty corrupt. Charles Colson even said that if you're going to make it in politics, then you have to become corrupt. He said you either get out of politics and remain in your faith, or you get rid of your faith and you go forward in politics. That's what he said. And so we look at those guys and say, wow, you have the power to make like the real decisions that affect our country? You seem to be doing all right for yourselves, and it's happening in part because you're blatantly disobeying things that we would call biblical commands, things that we would surmise God doesn't want you to do. You do them, and so therefore you get the power. How about Miley Cyrus? Don't watch the video, but if you've already been scarred by it, then uh, it's a great analogy. She was at the award ceremony the other day, and she did this dance, uh, and it was bad. Um, it was very, very bad. And and you look at her, and, and, and Katy Perry, I threw her down here too, because uh, she used to be somebody that grew up singing in the church, and and she, I saw a quote once where she said, God is something that I used to do, and I'll come back to eventually. Yeah, no joke. And, and she sings these things that are not so great. And, and I look at their lives and I think they have popularity, they have fame. Most of, of the girls, the young girls in our society want to be like them. And, and, and they're influencing our culture. And, I, and, and somewhere deep inside of me, don't, and you, don't you want to say, God, this doesn't feel right. I mean, why isn't it when people continue to sing Christian lyrics, then they get the platform and then they're on all the award shows and then everybody's looking at them. But it seems like these people who turn their backs on you, some of them do it for the fame even. And so it seems like you're blessing those who really, really don't like you and they're throwing it in our faces like, hey, this God thing is stupid. Oh, now I'm famous. And why is it? That way, and maybe just a little bit more personal, like if you scroll down your Facebook news feed. Now, first of all, I'll just be clear. Everybody, hopefully here, has figured out you should put your best self on Facebook, not your worst self. That's just a little tip, okay? And, and so uh, nobody wants to read your diary entry. However, um, just uh, you know, more to the point here, uh, you're going down your list and you're like, that guy hates God, and look, he's on vacation. And here I am sitting at my desk working. And you're looking at the next person like, man, their boyfriend is so hot. Uh, and I don't ever say that. But uh, yeah, I was trying to, yeah, um, you got me. Uh, their girlfriend is so hot. I don't say that either for the record. Um, I love you, honey. Um, but you're like, look at their lives. I mean, they have a better job than me, and they seem happier than me. And I know that they do not like God because every other post says so. You're thinking, how 
can this possibly be? If, if ever you've experienced any of these things, whether watching TV or voting or watching baseball or, or, or just reading Facebook, then you understand what the Israelites are feeling in these moments. Why is it that we are suffering when we are at least making an attempt to serve you, God, but these people who aren't making an attempt, they're throwing your rules and your laws and your regulations in your face. Why is it that they seem happy and successful? What is going on? Now, God could just say, I'll do what I want, but he doesn't. We'll see an answer in a second. Verse 16 is kind of this parenthetical statement that, that just it kind of just fits in there. Uh, it doesn't really connect to the first and last things that we'll see, but it's really important for us. Verse 16, Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Now, this is a pretty positive response from the people. And if you looked at the Old Testament prophets, I'm actually reading the book of Jeremiah right now, just on my own accord. And, 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 and you look at kind of his life, and, and he's like, hey, God's going to punish you. And the people are like, no, he's not. We're going to punish you, boy. That's kind of how that story goes in the book of Jeremiah. And when you look at, at the prophets in general, kind of the guys who communicate what God thinks in the Old Testament, what you quickly find is that most of the time they're rejected, nobody listens to them, and it's just kind of God said it and now they hear it and then they eventually get punished because nobody really cares what the prophets have to say. But in the book of Malachi, we see this contingent of people who respond to God. They say, wow. We need to do something different. I mean, this guy named Malachi, this messenger, has communicated God's word to us, and we want to do something about it. And, and they decide to make this scroll of remembrance. In Esther 6.1, you can see that. And a scroll of remembrance is simply a document that, that points to a historic moment or a historic person that really changed culture. And so these people say, we're going to do something so radically different that it is going to be caused to change the culture in which we live, the Israelite nation. And, and again, something that, that goes way back to the second sermon in this series, the thing that makes these people make this decision is, is pretty clear. It says that the people stood in awe of God. They feared the Lord. We talked about this several weeks ago. Many of you probably weren't here. And, and so here's the deal. If you are going to be a person that lives for God, then part of that in, in Malachi 1, 1 through 5, is simply saying, I recognize that God loves me. But right after that, what you see is that another part of that is saying, I recognize that God is big, God is powerful, He is the creator of the universe, and He absolutely deserves my respect in part because He could end me right now. Part of worshiping God fully, part of having a distinct faith, the, the title of this series, is that we stand in awe and fear of God and we respect Him fully. And these people, a contingent of them, repent. They decide to live differently because they look at God and they say, God, we understand that you are giant and holy and different and bigger and better than us. And so here is our lives. And God makes this cool promise. He says that they will be 
his treasured possession. If you were to go back to Exodus 19.5, you would see that same phrase, treasured possession. And in that moment, what God is saying is, I am going to create a new nation out of you Jewish people, the Israelite nation. And he says, you will be my treasured possession. And then that day, God comes in his presence on a fiery mountain, and God provides them with the covenant, the law. And he says, hey, if you follow this, then we will be in relationship forevermore. I will not deviate from that. But if you deviate, then, got another thing coming. I will punish you. And here, he reminds the people who have repented of that very promise. Because these people are saying, yes, God, we understand that many of us have turned our back on the covenant. We are not living the way that you have called us to live. We will start to do that again. We're even putting it in writing. And God says, hey, I haven't forgotten my promise to you. You still are those of you who have repented, those of you who are going to fulfill your part of the covenant. You still are the most valuable thing to me, my treasured possession. What's really cool is if you flip to the New Testament, you see that same phrase. 1 Peter 2.9 says it about Christians. It says that Christians, those who repent and say, I believe that Jesus died on a cross so that my sins could be paid for, those who accept that gift of Jesus, they become God's treasured possession. Now, here's here's what I want you to see. Notice that Malachi compares God's response to repentance as that of a loving father towards an obedient son. See that there. He says, look, I will will have compassion on you like a dad does for his obedient child. And here's the really cool part. Is that Jesus in the New Testament says that those who are apart from God, who have turned their back on God, who are away from God, God will respond to them if they return and repent, not just like he does to an obedient child, but like he does to a disobedient child. Listen to this story. There's a lot of verses. They're up on the screen this week. Uh, Listen to this. This story is so key for understanding the type of compassion that, that Malachi is demonstrating about God. Luke 15, 11 through 32. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me a share of the estate. Now, this is basically like saying, uh, Dad, I want my inheritance money, okay? Uh, I I know you're not dead, but I wish you were. That's really what he's saying. I wish you were dead, and so just give me the money now so I can get on with my life. So he divided the property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and then squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they begin to celebrate. 
Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called on one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, they replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Jesus says, you want to know what God is like? He's like a dad. He loves his children, but he also loves those who have turned their back on him so much so that they wished he was dead. And they squandered everything. They just turned their back on him completely. And God is like the dad who who runs to his child and embraces him when he decides to repent, to turn and go the other direction. You see, what Malachi doesn't tell us, but Jesus does, is that God does not ever give up on us. He wants us to be in relationship with him. And what the book of Malachi is saying is that that we can return and God will still look at us and say, you are my treasured possession. It does not matter where we have been, what we have done, how long we have been away. God desperately wants to be in a relationship with you and I. It's a big deal. We have a choice to make. That's the truth. The choice is this. All of us can decide to repent, to return to God, or we cannot. You see, the book, uh, the, that section ends with this. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. The people say, hey, it doesn't seem like serving you matters at all. And God says, look, if you repent, eventually you will see a difference. Now, here's what repentance looks for for, uh, for us who live after Jesus. It looks like this. It looks like saying, look, I know that I'm a sinner that does things wrong. I, I've done tons of stuff that I am 100% sure God would not be happy with. And out of that, it looks like saying, well, I can't do anything to make up for those sins. I mean, it doesn't matter what I try to do. There's no way to go back in time. There's nothing that, that can make this better. And then it, it looks at Jesus and says, that guy, according to Scripture came from heaven to earth to die so that the sins that I committed, they could be punished in the person of Jesus. And the story is that Jesus died on a cross so that every one of your sins could be paid for, every single one of them. And it says, the, the repentance says, I believe that that happened and that's my only way to be saved. That's my only way to come into a relationship with God. And so Jesus, I believe that you did that and here I offer you my life. I'm giving you everything. I will try to be obedient to you. I will not be perfect, but I will recognize that you are the Savior. I will try to live for you, and I will come back again and again as needed because you are a gracious God. That's what repentance is in the New Testament, and that is the choice that we all have to make. But the question still stands, is it worth it? And in the last part of Malachi, that question is answered about as vividly as God could answer it. And it's not often, and you know this because I'm pretty bold, I I say what I I think Scripture says, but this is one passage of Scripture where you almost feel a need to apologize for what God says, but I won't today. Listen to what he says. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. 
Not a root or branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 1 makes clear that this day is coming quickly. A day is coming, and on that day, this is what will happen. People who have not repented, who have not accepted Jesus as the Savior... He's talking about Jesus' second coming when he comes back for final judgment. On that day, those who have not given their lives to Jesus will be burned up. Completely and utterly destroyed for eternity. That's what it's saying. They will be as ashes along the ground. And then it says, on the flip side of that, that for those who have accepted Jesus, healing will rise. Now here's the deal. When you think about the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, this is what you ought to think about. It is that everything that is wrong in your life will be made right if you are a Christian. Now, just think about the world you live in and your life right now. Now, look at that. Now, subtract pain, physical pain. Subtract emotional discord. Subtract any type of suffering that you know. Subtract worry about the suffering that other people face. Subtract death. Subtract tears. Subtract anything else bad that you might think of. And what is being said here is that while some people will be burned up and they will be ashes along the ground, for those who have decided to repent, who have decided to give their lives to God through the the death and resurrection of Jesus, for them, life will be utterly perfect. It will be incredible because all of that stuff will be healed. Now that last part is even even more graphic. Let me read it to you again. Then you, talking to those who have repented, will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of the feet on the day when I act. Now to illustrate this, he uses well-fed calves. I'm not a farmer. I know nothing about farmer farming. However, I have a dog, and this is exactly what is, what is being described here. And uh, if you're offended, take it up with God. It doesn't change the end. If you're bothered by what God is saying here, it's still true. And, and that's the scary part. Uh, at least he gave you a warning. If you're, like, not on the repentance side, you're like, man, that, that's, what a jerk. I don't want to serve a God like that. Well, uh, you should choose to serve a God like that. In fact, lots of people say things like that before I get to that end part again. Uh, Desmond Tutut recently said this, I'd rather go to hell than worship a homophobic God. Became viral. Uh, King of Amarillo lyrics, it's a song, said, If they let you into heaven, then I'd rather go to hell. It's a great lyric, uh, but it dismisses the topic of hell. Will Rogers says this, it seems emotional. I kind of like this, but don't. Uh, If dogs don't go to heaven when I die, I want to go where they went. And some name that I can't pronounce from, from a, a blog comment post said this, and I, I just thought he did a really good job of summarizing how a lot of people feel. I realized a long time ago that I'd rather go to hell than heaven. I'm not really into worshiping. This is purely from an Abrahamic God standpoint. Some dude for the rest of eternity. I disagree with God's morals of sending good people to hell like the Dalai Lama. I'm also against having such a radical shift in consciousness. The whole God's glory is so great things doesn't pull poop not his word, mine. For me, I would not be able to review and critically assess his actions. 
which I have done insofar as the Bible goes. And then I would make the choice for myself. I think Satan might have been the good guy and realized that God was an arrogant word. And so he decided to give man consciousness and thought, and then I got a bad rep for it. That's, he didn't really word the end very good. But. See, there's this, there's this thinking that, like, it's not going to be that bad. And, like, yeah, kind of, yeah, it's whatever attitude. And it's pretty, pretty consistent out there. And, and, and that last part says, look, look, those who don't accept Jesus, whether they like what God has to say or not, those who don't accept Jesus are the ashes, and the rest of us, like well-fed calves, will frolic on their ashes. And it is like my dog, and every time I come home, my dog's been in the house, he comes out, and he just runs around, because he is so excited that somebody has come home to be with him. He makes a, a noise that sounds like a seal, like that, and he continues to do it. He, he, he spins around in circles. I clap my knees like this. He gets even more excited. He acts like he has been cooped up for, for all of eternity. Some of you who know my dog. And what this is saying is you have a choice. You can be ashes on the ground, or you can be like the dog running around excited when Jesus comes back because you have realized that what you have longed for and waited for and hoped for for all of your life has finally come in His return. And I, I'm sorry if you're offended by the Word of God, but I do not want you to be the ashes. I mean, that's just the truth of it. I mean, God could have been like, hey, surprise, you're ash. Sorry, I didn't warn you. But instead, he said, look, this is what it's like. There will be people celebrating on your ashes. There will be people frolicking around on your burned up self if you do not accept the gift of my son, Jesus. And man, I don't want that to be you. I mean, I want you to be frolicking around with me. It's a reason I do what I do, honestly. And so here, here is your choice. Your choice, I know, some of you are going to be like, yeah, I'm not going to, I'd rather go to hell than serve a mean God like that. Well, then you will. And you won't like it when you get there. Especially while I'm frolicking around on your ashes just to stick with the vividness of this passage right here. You will not like it then. God has given each of us an opportunity in the person of Jesus. Really, he gave you an opportunity. So it's not like God's like, hey, you, now, you're done. That's it. I don't care about you. No, he loves all of us, and God wants all men to come to a knowledge of him. That's what the New Testament says. But you have to make a decision to give your life to Jesus, to repent, to go the other direction, so that you can be running around celebrating because the healing has risen in the return of Jesus Christ. The book ends, verse 4, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and law I gave him at Horeb for all of Israel. That's simply to say, remember the covenant. The New Testament tells us that we get into a covenant relationship with God in a different way. I've already described that to you, and that is through Jesus. Verse 5, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will return the hearts of the parents to their children, and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Now here, I was going to read some verses, but I don't want to anymore. Let's listen to this. The Elijah is represented, representative of John the Baptist, a man who comes before Jesus. And the New Testament tells us that this guy named John 
He baptized people. That's how he got the Baptist. John the Baptist, he came to prepare the way for Jesus. He came to set people's hearts so that they could respond in a positive way to the coming of the Jesus the first time. Now, here's what I think is so cool, and this is why I don't want to get it lost in, in the verses I was going to read. This is the coolest part. It's easier for me to go, okay, cool, God wanted me to get to heaven, so Jesus came and he died. But think about this with me. Just consider this for a moment. God loved us so much that not only did he send his son, his very own son, to die on a cross so that we could be saved from our sins, he also sent somebody ahead of him to ensure that that Jesus' mission would be successful. That's not like, hey, I did my job. That's like, hey, I really want you in a relationship with me. If I don't send this guy to prepare your hearts to cause you to think about spiritual things, then Jesus' mission will not be successful. And so here, here's a man before my son in order to prepare the hearts of the world. You know what happens is John prepares hearts and some of those hearts are the disciples. And and when those disciples, the 12 guys that we know as the disciples, when they meet Jesus, they're ready. Jesus says, hey, come follow me. Without John the Baptist, they're like, dude, I don't know anything about you. I, I, you're kind of crazy. I'm not following a guy that, that you know, I don't know. But John the Baptist has already told me about you. He's pointed you out to me. So sure, I'll follow you. And then you know what happens? They follow Jesus around for three years. They're wrapped up in his ministry. Jesus dies. He rises again. And those 12 men, they go out and they spread the good news of Jesus all over their world. And someday you have heard about it because of them. You've heard the message that I told you this morning because of these men who were prepared by John the Baptist. You see, Jesus came and died, but it wasn't just God saying, I got this obligation that I need to fulfill to humanity. Jesus came and died, yes, but he did it because God loved you and God loved you so much he even sent a man before him because he wanted you to know about him and he wanted you to be like the calf who's frolicking around and not like the ashes underneath the calf's feet. And so you have a decision to make. I've presented it to you, said it to you from person to person. I haven't sugarcoated it at all. And I'm going to leave that decision up to you today. You can accept Jesus. And all you've got to do is you've got to say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I know that. I need a Savior. I believe that your Son came to be that Savior. I give you my life. It's that simple. There's no magic formula. It's that simple. You can do that alone in your seat. And in a minute, we're going to celebrate communion. And what I would ask today, as always, is that we would remember how amazing this grace is that provides us an opportunity. Jesus poured out his blood to die or to, so that we could be saved. And Jesus allowed his body to be broken so that we, I won't put this one back, so that we could have eternal life. And you can decide to have that today. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for those of you that don't know Jesus, that haven't repented, that right now would be ash if Jesus returned. I'm going to pray that you would accept the gift of the cross. And then the band will come up and they'll play. And I'm going to ask you to come forward and grab the the cup and, and the bread. And then I will come back up and I will lead us in taking this together as a church family. Lord, this has been a great book to study. And more than any other passage, this passage is directed at those who have just decided to to not live their lives for you. Maybe some people, God listening, I don't know, have never been confronted with the decision. Lord, I want to see 
people here give their lives to you. I, I really do. And, and, and so, God, I ask that this morning they would, maybe, maybe they've even said it, like, why should I serve God? And, and this morning they would, they would recognize that the answer to that question is plain and simply that someday when you return, it will be awesome for those who have accepted you and not awesome for those who haven't. And, and, and this morning, God, I, I pray that people right now listening would choose to accept the gift of salvation, the gift of, of future glory, the gift of future celebration, God, and they would leave behind a life of destruction, a life that rejects you, a life that is not filled with your joy and your mercy and, and the future hope of an eternity spent with you, Lord. Um, God, we just want that. I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons we do this as a church, that we, that we are a church, is because we want to see people know you. And, and so this morning, in our, in our gathering, God, I pray your presence would just go strong into the hearts of our people, and, and especially those who don't know you and, and aren't living for you and haven't given their lives to you, and they would make a decision to change that. I pray these things in your holy name, and I pray these things because I have a relationship with you through the cross. Amen.